One of the things that you see in much of the world where social democratic politicians have been elected is precisely this, um, getting elected on a left or a center-left message, coming in, and then either being frustrated by the way power exists or, in fact, revealing that their message or their modus is directed by this neoliberalism. And in the absence of pressure from the left, a couple of things can happen. One of the things is people become discouraged and cynical. And they basically say, hey, there's no point in engagement because all of these guys are fools. Another thing that can happen is that people become open to right-wing alternatives. The fellow is Bill Fletcher, longtime social justice writer, activist, and organizer. On November 11th, 2020, we dropped the first episode of Black Work Talk with Bill as our inaugural guest. A little over two years later, we dropped the last episode of Black Work Talk with Bill as our closing guest. After two seasons and 36 episodes, this 37th one will end this iteration of Black Work Talk. I say iteration because Convergence, my partner in producing this podcast, exploring ways to continue Black Work Talk, albeit with possible changes. But for me, I need to move on, perhaps to new projects. It has been a joy to talk with some of my old friends and my new friends about some of the central issues facing our society as you try to build a better world. I hope you have enjoyed eavesdropping on these conversations. This last episode is also our longest one. Bill and I covered a wide range of topics flowing from black worker organizing within a union context to the limitations of the just fight for greater representation, to the issue of neoliberalism and the challenges facing black mayors. We also talked about the complexities of fighting right-wing authoritarianism and the impact of the growing black immigrant population in the United States on black politics here. We closed with some thoughts and suggestions for folks struggling for justice today, came of age politically during the last 15 years. I think you'll enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. This is Stephen Pitts, host of Black Work Talk. And, you know, we, we started Black Work Talk two years ago. The first episode we, we dropped on November 20th, 2020. And um, going for two, two seasons, two seasons now. And I want to kind of announce that this is the last episode, man. It's been a, a good run. You know, the goal was always to contribute to, to a dialogue about building black worker power, how to improve the context of, of, of black work life, and how to transform the world. You know, we started this eight months into pandemic and a massive economic short, shutdown that is designed to save the patient. Um, didn't quite forecast there'd be a, a coup, attempted coup on January 6th of 2021. We've had a good run, good set of guests. It's time to shut it down. Um, and now we started this, 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 this process with my, my dearest friend, my long-term friend. Um, somebody says fools to be with me for 50, for 50 years, but he's been with me 50 years. I appreciate the bill. Bill Fletcher, you hear mm -hmm. in the beginning of the podcast? Here to shut it down. So I, we have a good time just kind of, you know, chop it up a little bit. 
review what we've done, review the world, and, and talk what we got to go forward. Bill, so Bill, thanks for coming on, man. We appreciate it. Steve, it's a, it's a pleasure. And as I was saying before we started, uh, I wanted to thank you for this. Uh, and it's been very important. The feedback has been very good. And you're going to be missed. But uh, thank you for having put this time into the program. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not going anywhere, by the way. You know, right. um, I'm going to do some more stuff. I had this kind of idea of doing a book, by the way. And of course, I'll drag you into the into the progress into the process. Absolutely. And um, so you might say that this this sort of manifestation of Black World Talk is shutting down, but may, but the platform, my platform, Black World Talk. Mm-hmm. I want to say it jokingly. I think the whole idea is very very self centered, by the way. But anyway, um, the whole notion of Black World Talk can still go on, different formats. You know, I, I wanted to kind of have kind of a, um, a looking back, looking forward approach to this last episode. And the context of what I was trying to drive the entire podcast is what I call a power building imperative. The idea that the source of, of the problems in the world, that the source of called black exploitation or black suffering is the lack of power. And therefore, the only way to transform the world to build power. And I kind of say it because too often times discussing problems and solutions ignore the issues of power. So I always want to center, center, center that. Um, so I want to ha- throw around some main topics and just kind of kick it around. You know, one mm-hmm. thing to start with, um, you know, I mentioned the power imperative. In my mind, Bill, there's no permanent power without organization. Mm-hmm. I've always raised question of stickiness of stuff and, and how we can be exhilarated over individual achievements we can be exhilarated over mobilizations, but to have lasting effect requires some level of organization. And I think about oftentimes in the context of, of black political movements, you've seen one an associated rise in black worker activism. And that activism manifested in the actual black labor power and organizations that's helped to push forth the black movement itself. And so there's a cohort of black union leaders who kind of came together in the course of the mass labor labor organizing in the 30s and 40s. And they formed kind of multi-union groups called the National Negro Labor Council and the Negro American Labor Council in the 50s. And the last group, the National American, excuse me, the Negro American Labor Council, they were particularly central to the mobilizing in 63 in the Marshall Washington. In the context of the black power kind of phase of our struggle, late 60s, early 70s, we saw the development of the Black Caucus movement, where you had both in almost all major unions, Black Caucus developing, and also you had a new sort of you know, multi-union formation called CBTU, the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists. What do you think were some of the strengths and weaknesses of those initiatives? And why do we kind of see a weakened set of Black caucuses today? What's your thoughts, mm. man? Well, the, the rise of groups like the Negro American Labor Council and National Negro Labor Council um, was in many respects aimed at forcing the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, and then later the merged 
AFL-CIO, to fulfill the promises that had been made in the 1930s and early 40s. And particularly after World War II, there was a major crisis facing the black worker. Uh, People were being removed from jobs. There was objectively a depression for black workers. Um, And they were being kicked out of industries. And then the Red Scare, uh, 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 Red Scare starts the Cold War, and there was a repression of organizations that were progressive organizations. So this first set is trying to get the CIO and then the AFL-CIO to fulfill the promises that have been made. Um, as the civil rights phase of the Black Freedom Movement emerges, uh, the, there's a development of multiple organizations among Black workers. So you mentioned caucuses, but even going further back to around 1960, you have the Harlem Fight Back. You have the, uh, the work that the Congress on Racial Equality did among Black workers. Uh, and, and so in some ways, that was the Black worker component of the Black Freedom Movement. And a lot of the energy that these formations had was directly related to the overall energy of the Black Freedom Movement. Um, the development of caucuses uh, in, in more, uh, more distinct form takes place really as the Black Power Movement is emerging. And again, these caucuses gained uh, much of their energy from the larger Black power movement. One of the problems, though, Steve, I think, and I'm not saying this to be critical, is that many of these caucuses were fighting for greater representation within the union movement, um, sometimes greater addressing by the larger union movement of issues facing black workers, but were not overall trying to reshape the union movement through our eyes, which is a point I hope we can come back to later. Real um, quick thing, we say our yeah. eyes, who is the, the we plural? Black who workers. Okay. Um, so the second thing that happened is that many of these caucuses plateaued strategically, much like the rest of the Black Freedom Movement. And it was unclear what they were going to do next. And you start to really see that by the mid-70s. And then the third thing that happened is that uh, many of the Black caucuses were able to arrive at a sort of modus vivendi with the leadership of their respective unions. And the Black caucuses became almost uh, like holding pens for uh, black, act, black worker activism. And, and so you ended up having situations where uh, some of the leaders of these caucuses became the leaders for life, you know, as opposed to bringing forward new and younger voices. Bill, as you're talking, a couple of things came to my mind. First is this idea that, well, I'll say it in a couple of different ways. 
one is that you can have a demand for increased participation, which is just and righteous and progressive, mm-hmm. but not deeply radical, you might say, necessarily. Right. And so you have like a two-pronged, two-pronged nature of the black freedom struggle. One is for kind of the just democratic demand for, for participation uh, and call equality, equity, those sort of things. Mm-hmm. And also have the, the somewhat linked demand for broader transformation. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes as we analyze what happened, what was going on is that kind of a, a, the, on the surface, there seemed to be some sort of joyness in the approaches, in the demands. But, but in the course of implementation, the differences can come to bear. Absolutely. Where, where some were fine with having achieved the democratic demands and gotten the first black or gotten more blacks, whatever else might be. Um, but didn't we satisfy the broader transformative demands? But also interesting, and I asked the question who we were, I and mean, you said that they didn't advance our interests. That speaks to... Another question I'll call kind of the problem of shallow democracy, mm-hmm. where sometimes you can have individuals advance, and it does represent more representation. Mm-hmm. But the question, in the absence of some sort of link between themselves and broader base, or absent some sense of accountability, you don't have deeper democracy. And therefore, the black faces in higher places don't mean black transformation and power. Mm-hmm. Um, do we need to talk a bit about? Um, yeah. No, that's absolutely right. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's a number of different things that I'm thinking about uh, as you're speaking. One is um, this last point. There was an episode of the series that I loved, L.A. Law years ago, um, that focused on... You could say decades ago, Bill, but gone. I know. It's right. It was like in the 90s. <laughs> 30 years, yeah, 30 yeah. years now. <laughs> um, my wife was pregnant at, at the time that she first discovered L.A. Law, right? Um, but there was this episode where there was this black guy in this firm, and he was the first like ranking partner in some firm. And make a long story short, he was involved in trying to keep other black folks out, right? Because he wanted to be the first and only Negro. And we see that in the trade union movement. We see, uh, in some cases, good leaders become intoxicated with their rise and they block others from rising. But the other part of it, Steve, is that it becomes dangerous for them if they want to retain their first Negro status to be pushing certain issues. I'll give you an example of something without mentioning any names. When I was at the AFL-CIO back in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was um, uh, this... Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King weekend labor program. You might remember, right? And it rotated around the country. And so I was involved in planning one of them. And it would, you know, there's trainings that go on and speakers. And so there was a 
black trade union leader who was involved in my team, essentially, planning it out. And I proposed that there be a class on running for union office and, and how to do it. And this person freaked out. They said, oh, no, 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 we can't do that. I said, well, why not? Said, no, 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 the affiliates, they'll get really nervous if we're doing that. I said, well, then why are we having this program? And to which, of course, there was no answer. But that epitomized right there part of the problem that, that you can get into certain positions of authority, but when you're trying to push anything that is transformative, you have to anticipate resistance. And there's many people that, that don't want to take that risk. And Bill, one question is, does that resistance stem from what's called personal opportunism? Mm -hmm. I want to save my job in a very crass way. Mm -hmm. But also can stem from simply lack of vision. Yes. That, you know, at the labor center, UC Berkeley, where I used to work, um, we're not offering these courses in high participation bargaining. Where the idea is simply that we want to bring as many people as possible into kind of negotiations. Now, a lot of people may oppose it because simply, that sounds crazy. It can't be done that way. They may not have personal failings in terms of being opportunistic. If you want to call it a failing, it's the lack of vision. Mm -hmm. And both things are important. Yes. I think it's easy to find examples of, of the opp opportunism, you know, and kind of you're not a, against that mm -hmm. and kind of talk about it in various ways. But it's harder sometimes to develop a, a, a higher vision of transformation mm -hmm. um, th that also is involved. I think back to some of the attempts to not get too off the, off the topic here, but in trying to form black worker centers mm -hmm. th that there can be a lot of different visions as to why we have black worker centers. And some can be, you know, at 30,000 feet and mm -hmm. some can be at 30 feet. Mm -hmm. And they both can initially unite around the idea of getting more black worker centers. And so I think part of the story is, is not just combating, um, I say, personal opportunism, but how do you kind of both have a broader vision on change mm -hmm. and then set up kind of guardrails to minimize Good folk fall into bad stuff. Um, that distinction that you're raising is a very, very important one. Um, so it's much easier on one level to deal with the personal opportunism. The problem with the lack of vision is that the lack of vision question often overlaps insecurity. So that you have people that are otherwise good people who are nevertheless not only challenged by lack of vision, but they fear being pushed. They fear looking insecure or incompetent. Excuse me, they, they are reluctant uh, to take advice. So one of the things that I think is important here, it's, it's something that I say to all leaders when, they, when they're elected or picked, that they need a, a kitchen cabinet of people that they trust, who they will listen to, and who have a vested interest in their success. 
Um, if the organization is large enough, there needs to be a chief of staff who has the right and the ability and the mandate to challenge the leader. Uh, and that because around all leaders, as you know, you've heard me say this many times, there's an invisible bubble that is there to block, quote unquote, bad news, uh, news that will upset the leader. And, and so in the absence of having people that can penetrate that bubble, you can have leaders that either lack vision or are kind of delusional, right? And are not challenged. So there are structural things that need to be done. Um, one of the best examples, I think, of how it needs to work is what Martin Luther King did with the people that surrounded him. And it's really interesting when you look at that and you contrast that with so many other leaders, that King surrounded himself with very smart people who were themselves leaders. He was not threatened by that. And they were all deeply loyal to him. And, and they were people that spoke frankly, from what I can tell with him. You contrast that with some leaders who will not go named, who will not surround themselves with intelligent people, who want to be the brightest light in the room, uh, and are very insecure. And, and so this becomes a real problem. Uh, and then you have sort of the organizational challenge. I was talking with someone today in uh, this union, and we were talking about the fact that the union, even though it has something that they call a strategic plan, it really isn't a strategic plan. And, and so in terms of where the union is going, it's really un uncertain. So these are things that I think that we actually have to grapple with, and I think you're right about the Black Workers Center issue is very real. And as we both have found out, that people can use that term and mean something entirely different. It's, it's as if you're speaking two different languages. Now, you mentioned the whole MLK example uh, of, and I thought about the name names comparing MLK to Richard Jackson. Yeah. If, if you try to think through who were some of, let's call the lieutenants of MLK, you could name Andy Young, name James Bevel, name James Orange, name Jesse Jackson, name right. folk. If we said who the lieutenants around Jesse Jackson, this pause would happen. And, and part is the function of the styles of, of leadership you talked about. Mm -hmm. But I think also part of it is the times and, and the issue of movements too. So I think we, we go back to my original question in terms of why do we say we can set a Black Hawks today? Is, is understand in my mind that all organizational forms have a life cycle. Mm -hmm. they, they, they were born in an age and they're kind of, in lack of a better term, they're prisoners of that age. Mm -hmm. And therefore, when the age changes, they may be stuck in a prison, literally, of, of mm -hmm. the past. And I hope that when we talk about going forward, we ask ourselves, where are the new energies today? Mm -hmm. and, and, and how, we, how we allow the new energies to develop new forms of activity, of activism, new policy demands and campaigns and movements, and new leaders will emerge. Well, I think that that's correct. But 
I'm going to put an asterisk because I think that you can see in organizations over different ages certain patterns. So the Jesse Jackson phenomena that you mentioned, uh, yes, an element is that it was 20 years later. Um, but there were other elements. I mean, in other words, Jackson could have led in a very different way. Um, but he chose not to or was unable to. Um, and, and so I, I just put that asterisk because I think organization builders now need to be thinking about these questions as they're going forward. Uh, because otherwise, they can often be seduced uh, in a really bad direction. Um, but to your, but also to your point, I think that you're right that organizations have lives, and uh, and either the organization can itself transform so that it in effect becomes a new organization, or it. Um, plateaus or dies, sometimes a swift death, death, other times a very lengthy one. Um, and sometimes it doesn't know that it's dead. You know, on a larger philosophical issue that we won't get into too deeply is that we're talking about the connection of agency and structure mm -hmm. and not trying to be over-reliant on individual initiative. Those clearly the people make choices. Right. Um, but don't fall into some sort of determinism where it has to do something because people do have choices. And that balance that is really super important. I, I want to shift to another sort of topic that kind of linked, but a bit different. If, mm -hmm. if the first topic focuses more on kind of workplace stuff, I want to get into a bit non-workplace, a larger, broader community stuff. You know, um, just as the kind of civil rights movement kind of gave spawn so the black worker activism, you mentioned Harlem Fight Back and, and other organizations. Then you had kind of the, the caucus coming out of the black power movement. In, in many ways, the, the parallel set of activism happening in the electoral arena was kind of the first mayor thing, first black mayor. Mm -hmm. So we had a kind of first black mayor wave starting in 1967 mm -hmm. with Richard, Richard Hasher being mayor, elected mayor and, and um, Gary and Carl Stokes in, in, in Cleveland. And it kind of crested in the middle of the 80s and early 90s with Harold Washington coming out, become mayor of uh, Chicago in 83, mm -hmm. and David Dickens becoming mayor in New York in, in 1990. We also had the first big expansion of, of the Black Caucus. We had first large numbers. We had almost every city with a large Black, black population had at least one representative, not two. Mm -hmm. And so almost any sort of district that could have a majority um, black population had a black representative. And that kind of expansion occurred in general. Two kind of important features there. One, that those movements had some links to grassroots movements, civil rights movements, black power movements. The representatives had some link to those movements. Maybe they might have been process leaders, or might have been minister, minister leaders and, and leaders and activists. But at the same time, when you kind of grab the, the levers of political power and put black hands on those levers, those levers had less capacity to respond to needs of working class black folks as cities mm -hmm. began to crumble. Mm 
mm-hmm. that's kind of the reality there. And then we also saw the rise of, age, age, of the age of inequality. We had rising income and wealth inequality. We had rise in mass incarceration. We had kind of the impact of the crack academic. We saw this verbalization of black populations in most major cities. So you have fewer black within the cities and kind of the residual black communities were very, very poor. And I think that had an impact on electoral politics in that one, the next wave of black politicians had a connection to aggressive activism. Mm-hmm. They might have been elected in, in, in areas where blacks were not a dominant political force. Their ties are more to corporate America. They reinforced the, ten, the tendency of the Democratic Party to be more corporate than mm-hmm. leaning more toward social democratic. Um, and to put a slogan on that stuff, we can call it kind of the rise in the neoliberal tendency in black politics. And since you're from, from New York, I'm picking your, your peeps, um, Bill, talk about Hakeem Jeffries, who's in the House mm-hmm. of Representatives, is kind mm-hmm. of the Democratic leader in the House. Think about your new mayor, Eric Adams, in New York City. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, it's kind of convoluted, but, but that's a trend that, to me, holds back black politics. What do you think can be done to combat the kind of trend in, in, in neoliberal black, black America? Oh, well, let's just clarify a couple of things in order to answer that. Hey, so, clarify, clarify Sam Aron Bill, which one is it? No, no, blunt? just to clarify, because okay, uh, we're on the same page. Um, I think that for the listener, it's important to understand neoliberalism is an economic theory that has people who claim to be on the left and people who claim to be on the right as exponents. And we start to really see it emerging slowly in the 70s, uh, around the time of Jimmy Carter. I remember when Paul Songus was elected to Senate in Massachusetts. And then, of course, the full-blown thing with, with Reagan um, and in, in 1980 of being elected. And part of the message, Steve, is that, it, well, part of it is that the left had been defeated in the early 70s. There is a void that emerges. And, and part of the left withdrew from the electoral arena entirely. And so there's a void that emerges, and you have these politicians, in this case, black politicians, who in many cases will say good things, but their entire economic theory was influenced by neoliberalism, uh, Harold Washington being an exception to that. Um, and then you have the rise of the kind of people you're talking about who are more connected to corporate America. And in the absence of a black left that is rooted particularly among black workers, that is prepared to challenge these folks, and I don't mean just through demonstrations, but I mean challenge people for power, uh, running in primaries, uh, you know, building mass struggle, you get, you get what we've gotten. Um, and and I, 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 there's no other way to say it. 
That's what happens. In a void, what did it say? Nature abhors a vacuum. And so in the vacuum that existed, these forces came in, and they often can articulate very a very progressive message. Uh, they don't necessarily come across as running dogs of imperialism. They can they can come across with a very progressive message, only to be elected, and then start implementing a neoliberal direction. Now the thing is, Steve, that this is not unique to the black experience. One of the things that you see in much of the world where social democratic politicians have been elected is precisely this, um, getting elected on a left or a center-left message, coming in, and then either being frustrated by the way power exists or, in fact, revealing that their message or their modus is directed by this neoliberalism. And in the absence of pressure from the left, a couple of things can happen. One of the things is people become discouraged and cynical. And they basically say, hey, there's no point in engagement because all of these guys are fools. Another thing that can happen is that people become open to right-wing alternatives. Uh, and it can, and, and this is one of the things I'm worried about in Jackson, Mississippi, to tell you the truth, that the water crisis, which was not the result of what the Lumumba administration has done, will get blamed on the Lumumba administration. And you'll get either a right wing black person or even a white person who will come forward waving a sword, claiming that they will introduce change. And people who are desperate will often accept desperate measures. Um, on the joking side, Bill, you mentioned about running dog lackeys of imperialism. Mm -hmm. I say we need to have a contest, contest for listeners to under age of 30. And how many how many jargons can they pick out from this this um, broadcast? Get a prize <laughs> for the number most jargon they can pick out in the origins yeah. of them. We're not we're but, not using much jargon. I, I I did that purposely. Okay. Um. Well, let me go back to what happened. Give more jargon. But um, on a serious tip, the whole question of building a, a left pole in black politics to deal mm -hmm. with the kind of the rising neoliberal ten, trend, tendency in black community. That's so damn complicated, Bill. Mm -hmm. you know? Because f was part of what's happened in the last 30, 40 years is that all politics becomes spectacles. That's across the board. And so why I can have some of no substance from president is partially because Trump is this kind of public official, public, public persona. Mm -hmm. And his his image of being rich, smart, blah blah blah, gets him over, right? People mm -hmm. have their branded platforms and or those sort of things, and so this whole idea where where performance is a central element of politics seeps into left politics in the same way, mm -hmm. and I think the danger is that people don't eat spectacles; they eat bread. That's right, and they drink water; they don't drink spectacles, mm -hmm. and, and so when our substance is one of performance and, the, and people's needs are very material. 
they will go to what appears to be commonsensical answers that can be very damaging, both in the immediate and long-term situation. So I think one important thing is how to generate a left politic that's rooted not in performance, rooted in actually building organization that has a broader vision of life, but has real ties into Black working class, working class communities and can deeply mobilize them. Well, you're absolutely right. And this is a good opportunity to talk about the Black Radical Congress and our experiences there, because it bears on this question. Um, an organization, a, a, a Black left that is serious about power and fighting for power, has to be united, at least to some degree, on what that means concretely. And specifically, what's the role of electoral work in that? What's the role of um, mass struggle in that? And, and so the problem is, for your listeners, uh, the Black Radical Congress was this united front of the Black left that was formed in 1998, lasted till 2008, um, but died a slow death after sort of 2004, 2005. But um, one of the problems when we're talking about the Black left is, and, and, and you can see it in the BRC, is that we actually, we were not united on that question. We were united to a great extent on the importance of the Black working class, but people interpreted that, as you know, in very different ways. And so the Black Radical Congress, rather than being a vehicle to challenge the kind of elected officials you're talking about, whether they be Black or white, Latina, Asian, whatever, um, we weren't able to do it. So that's, so it's, it's uh, the need for something that's rooted um, and something that has a vision for what the fight for power looks like, but which necessitates the idea of a broad united front. This cannot simply be the black left operating on its own. And for many people, man, as you well know, that's asking a lot. I think when folk engage in real politics, and I'll differentiate that from kind of real politic, but kind of real politics and try and deal in, in the issues that affect people like water or housing, public safety, and you try to do it on a broad mass scale, that changes, one, who you talk to, Mm -hmm. and it changes how you talk with them and it will change what issues you fight on. And I think that that's this other side thing of kind of a politics of performance because when we have a politics of performance, either we're talking to ourselves mm -hmm. or we're talking to a, some media that will like our spectacles. Right. And given those two sets of audiences, it shapes what we're talking about, how we talk, and all those things. I mean, we talk about, well, I think good labor organizers talk about how do you get 80, 90% participation in labor activity. Right. 
um, the same set of rules should apply to non-workplace stuff as well. That's right. Where we talk about, not that I speak for the community, but actually we've mapped out an actual neighborhood and we know that we've talked to, and I don't mean simply knocked on doors, not we talked to say 80% of people in that neighborhood, mm-hmm. some of which may agree with us about housing, some may mm-hmm. not. And from there, we get those people in motion. And that's super, super important part of the, the, the deal here. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And it's hard work. I, it's like I live in a community in Maryland and we have a neighborhood association, which has basically been dying a slow death. And we, uh, Candace and I uh, said to the leader of it, let's, uh, let's go door knocking and ask people to join. And um, it's hard work, man. You know, a lot of doors didn't get opened and I knew people were home, you know, <laughs> but they, they, and they knew why we were there. Um, I mean, it's hard work building bases. It's much easier being self-promotional and, and advancing your so-called brand. And, uh, and I think, Steve, that I've been saying for a while that even progressives were more affected by Reaganism than we want to acknowledge. That Reaganism really carried out a frontal assault on the idea of collective struggle, collective anything, and instead substituting individual and entrepreneurial activity. So what you started to see more and more were individuals, even very progressive ones, positioning themselves in the absence of organization and in the absence of base and suggesting that they were somehow entitled to speak for entire constituencies, constituencies which in many cases they've never really interacted with. I, I look at that as a legacy of Reaganism, and it's something that we have to take on. And that's linked to the transformation slash destruction of old forms of social organization. That's right. And so you had deindustrialization and, and destruction of strong industrial unions. You had kind of, as I call it, suburbanization of black communities, along with mass incarceration, along with the rising crack, and old forms of organization in black communities were gone. Mm-hmm. And, and you mentioned that's hard work to knock on doors. Um, I think it's, it's hard work to knock on doors, meaning it's easy to lose or then it's easy to win. Right. And so the question is, how do we fight both those change conditions that's causing our, our uphill battle? And how do we fight the subsequent sort of allure of personal brands and personal aggrandizement to, to build a strong movement itself. Um, yeah, it is hard. Well, it is hard. Let, let's take those two. I think it's really important. Um, one thing that I believe is critical is it goes back to the question of organization that it's easy to feel like you're a bit nuts when you're in social justice work because we're constantly going against the tide. And 
we're constantly being thrown different things to discourage us. So in order to combat that, we need organization. We need some levels of organization where like-minded people can join together and provide positive reinforcement. To go back to my neighborhood association, the neighborhood association basically stopped having meetings and just, I mean, a while ago, and basically just communicated via email. Um, well, this was, this becomes a real problem because even though the meetings were shrinking, no one stopped to really think about why were the meetings shrinking and what needed to be done. Uh, because actually the need for face to face contact was increasing in importance as new people were coming into the neighborhood who weren't part of the original, original core. Steve, this is something that happens in every organization. And without that core constantly being re-energized and rejuvenated, um, one, you can develop clicks. And the other, the other thing that can happen is that people just become really discouraged and they give up. They think that nothing really can be done. The one thing I thought about, and I will move on, move on to a new topic in a second, but I thought about as you're talking about the, the, the lack of contact with new people into, into your neighborhood, that one of the strengths of the building trades is because of the, the apprenticeship pro, program, mm -hmm. they grab new people from the very beginning. That's right. And, and people see their leashes not only to the, to the company, because the chick, but also the union that, that kind of trained them in right. many ways. Right. And it may not be a progressive connection, by the way, okay? Mm -hmm. It's clearly a deeply felt connection. Mm -hmm. and, and that's an example of how when you early and often maintain contact, you can build stronger organizations itself. Um, oh, man. And, and actually, it applies to every organization. Again, going back to my neighborhood association, um, the moment that someone moves into the area, somebody from the association should be at their door. Hey, I'm Bill Fletcher. I'm here from the association. We want to talk to you about it, right? Because the same is true in workplaces, by the way, that it's been documented that getting to people within the first few months of their uh, going to work somewhere on a part of a union will determine whether that person really comes with the union or ends up being, remaining alienated from it. Uh, those first few months. And, and so with the Neighborhood Association, when you don't grab people right away, they develop their own conclusions. So then when you show up, it's like, well, well like, why? I've, I've been doing fine without it. So you're right. I mean, the, the building trades have a structural way of dealing with it. But every organization needs to, in fact, have a mechanism to address it address the same thing. Let me shift gears a bit, Bill. You, you've written a lot about international affairs. Mm -hmm. and, and linked to that is the kind of rise of right-wing right authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. And what's super complicated is that you have this, this let's say, neoliberal regime that's alienated a lot of people mm -hmm. and lower the lifestyle of a lot of people 
which in my mind is fertile ground for the rise in right-wing authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. But it means that you can't simply fight the right-wing authoritarianism, but also dealing with neoliberalism simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And um, that kind of duality has caused problems in a lot of our, our attempts to fight, you might say. Mm -hmm. So Ukraine, what do we do? Palestine, what do we do? Central America, what do we do? Where these kind of battles aren't crystal clear sometimes. So can you sketch out some of these issues and, and equally important, talk about why it's important to black working class folk in the United States? Right. Well, there's several questions in what you were raising. Um, I think the first one is a framework issue, which is to say that um, it's important for all activists to identify at every moment who is the principal enemy at that moment. Now, the, by talking about the principal enemy, you're not necessarily talking about the only enemy, um, but you're talking about who, under whatever circumstances, is the principal target. The problem for many people uh, on the left is that they see all of the enemies and basically take the position that we have to go after all of them at the same time, which is simply, it's not possible. Uh, I mean, it's like if you went into an alley and there were three people coming at you, um, if you can't run, you simply can't say, well, I'm going to fight all three at the same time. You're going to look at which is the most vulnerable and go after them and whip them as hard as you can. Um, the same is true in mass struggles. You've got to identify the principal target. The, the second thing is that right-wing authoritarianism is playing to a lot of things. It's playing to economic crises. It's playing to changing demographics. It's playing to the rise of women and uh, gender non-conforming populations. It's, it's uh, addressing um, uh, the environment, the impact of the environment, all of these things. Our job is not only to fight them, but to offer an alternative. And because, in, because the status quo is simply not acceptable. But we've got to fight them. And in that fight, we're going to have different, a range of different allies. Um, so I think one conclusion from all of this is that progressives and black worker organizations, et cetera, need to have their own vision of victory. What does victory look like? What is it that we're fighting for? Um, what, who are the potential allies out there that share enough in common with us to be viewed as strategic allies? Who are some of the people out there that might be tactical allies that we agree with on particular battles, but that's it. Um, so organization has to look at these things at every moment. Uh, and that's why we can't confuse ideology and politics. You know, ideology helps to frame, it. ideology are the glasses that we put on to look at the world. But the politics is the practices that we are carrying out in order to win 
that flow from the ideology. Again, at every moment, we've got to figure out who or what it is that we're up against. Otherwise, we lose. Um, the situation internationally has always been complicated. Uh, but one of the things that I would say uh, for, for us as Black folks is that we've always had a current, and I'm actually writing some stuff about this now. I'm going to be giving a presentation in another month about Black internationalism. There's always been a current within Black America, at least since the 1700s, and one could argue even before that, that looked at our struggle for freedom within an international context. That didn't necessarily mean it was always progressive, but it looking at, at our struggle is not a struggle that can only be fought domestically. Uh, you had black abolitionists who took the cause or uh, the case to Europe. You had emigrationists who were basically saying, we're going to move out of the United States. You had people like the African Blood Brotherhood uh, that saw themselves as part of a revolutionary effort for black freedom. But in every case, it was this idea of we're not here in the United States fighting alone. We're not fighting, as Malcolm would have said, just a battle for civil rights, but a battle for human rights. And so one of the implications there is that the allies that we need to look for are not just in the United States, that there are and have been allies externally. But we have to understand that, that these uh, allies or potential allies are themselves always complicated because they have their own agenda. And it may overlap with ours, but it may not, it's unlikely that it's going to be identical. And this could be a, a real source of confusion, which leads to an understanding, Steve, that the enemy of our enemy is not always our friend. I thought about um, how the growing the growing black immigrant population in America, mm -hmm. how it impact black politics. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that in, in the labor movement, what happened around the question of immigration is that those unions whose base began to change and saw a rising amounts of immigrant workers in their base, they had the best views toward immigration. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder how that, that notion of having more and more black immigrants in America, and how it's going to change the nature of how that would change the nature of black politics. Oh, I can I mean, tell you, because in my county, I mean, this—that's exact. I'm witnessing it, man, and it's it's really remarkable um, that we have this large influx of African immigrants, and they have fairly quickly gotten involved in the political arena, and. Um, and most of, most of those who've gotten in, into the political arena, they have not come in on an immigrant platform, if you know what I mean. It's like they didn't come in saying, I'm here to fight for African immigrants. It's, it's really interesting uh, the way that 
there is a they're not running as African immigrants. They're running as black folks. Um, and they, some of them are progressive and some of them aren't. Um, but it's, <clears throat> it's distinct from Latino and Latina immigrants who might be fighting a similar fight but that is to, to get represented in a situation where they've been unrepresented. Um, what, you, what you don't have among the African immigrants is, at least I don't hear it very much around here, is we're fighting for the representation of African immigrants. You'll hear people afterwards talk about, you know, I came here from Liberia or Nigeria or whatever, and you know, I'm trying to do X, Y, and Z, but they're not running on an immigrant platform, which is quite fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Um, way, way beyond the scope of, of, of my knowledge. So, so minimal sort of response, Bill, but it seems to me that the question of documentation is central to that difference mm -hmm. that extent and scale. And so we have a large body, a large number of immigrants, Latino immigrants, just large numbers, mm -hmm. African immigrants. And a lot of those folk are one, undocumented, mm -hmm. and two, forced into, at best, low labor markets that shapes and have consistent ties back home that mm -hmm. shapes how they engage in politics. Yeah. So I would simply raise those questions as a way to, to be able to look at that issue around, around African and also Caribbean immigration as well, right? Mm -hmm. One is the question of documentation. Yep. Two is point. kind of the, the, the class positionality of folks yes. in, in the labor market. And third would be kind of how they see the ties to the to back home. Because yeah. to, to examine where you might find similarities, where you might find differences. Um, Good point. I think that the class issue for African immigrants around here, really important. Really important distinction from both Caribbean and Latino and Latina migrants. Um, and how that will play out over the longer term is one of the things that I keep wondering about. Yeah. Let me kind of go to my last bucket of questions. Um, yeah. You know, I think about the, the last sort of wave of, of, of Black activism. To me, it kind of starts with the response to Katrina in 2005. Mm -hmm. And for right now, it says crested with the, with the, 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 the response to the murder of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. like 15 years uh, 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 has passed. That's like a generation, right? Mm -hmm. of people have kind of come, a, uh, come of age in this, well, this kind of wave of black activism. Um, and they've seen the neglect and malpractice in Katrina. I mean, they, they, they've seen the elation of having the first black president and his appointment. They kind of were horrified when seeing the, the, an anger and mood of action because of uh, the highly publicized police murders and extra legal murders of black folks that time period. And they were part of the, that phenomenon, that mobilization in um, December 2020. You're an old man, mm -hmm. like me. You're mm -hmm. a man. You're a vet of the struggles that occurred to the 70s and now. But also your student struggles that predated the 70s. Mm -hmm. If you're sitting, sitting in your rocking chair on a porch 
it was not raining California or freezing the rest of the, part of the country, but sunny mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. And people coming for suggestions of what to do. I want to get your thoughts on how what we can do to further the fight. You know, and and, and want to pose like three broader readings for that question. Then you can feel free to take it when I take it, though, Bill. One is people who are involved in work organizing. What should, what should be done? Second, um, black folks who are, I'll say, embedded in the labor movement, maybe the elected officers, maybe the staff members, they're mm-hmm. progressive. What should they do? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and we talked a bit about before, but some closing thoughts on folk who want to build a left pole in black politics. Um, what's okay. to be done, bro? What's up? Well, this is your last okay. chance to give My the answer. Chance. All right. And people waiting for it, man. All right. So I'm going to need you to remind me of each of those categories one at a time. But I want to preface it by saying something about the old man. Uh, there's something that Clint Eastwood said that I got a real kick out of and I've been repeating. He says that every morning he would wake up and he'd look in the mirror and he'd wipe the old man away. And I love that. And see, the thing is that I say that to the listeners because neither Steve nor I are old men. Um, But I know people that are half our age that are. And, um, And one of the things is our determination to change the planet. Um, actually keeps us young. And, um, and it's when people give up on that that they become old. And I've seen it. Like I said, I mean, people half our age, man, who have retired in place. Um, so I wanted to start there because... But Bill, I want to clarify yeah. something. This is the same Clint Eastwood who spoke to an empty chair at the GP convention, he, same he's, giving, one. he's giving you political guidance now about the That's future. Right. The same okay. one who makes incredible films, uh, almost all of which have people in co- people of color in them. And uh, a libertarian yeah. fascist too, right? Yeah. Well, man. I wouldn't call him a fascist, but he's definitely a libertarian. <laughs> well, um, go on, man. Go on. Yeah. I'm joking. Go on, son. So um, I want to start there because I feel like that's the framework that listeners need to, we all need to have that you are sort of fighting until the lights go out. Um, and that also means to stay young. It means you got to listen and you got to be, uh, you may not be able to do what people have done that are half your age, but you got to be able to listen to new ideas. So one thing I'd start with is that Steve, the ability and willingness to mentor, to listen to new ideas, to reconsider old ones, um, to keep moving. The second thing is the 15 years of activism that you mentioned have resulted in precious few organizations. There have been many mobilizations. There have been a lot of nonprofits 
But in terms of mass democratic organizations, democratic with a small d, not a whole lot. And, and when you think about the, uh, the movement after the murder of George Floyd, incredible mobilizations, um, we're left with a problem that the lack of institutions being built and new organizations opened up a space for the right to hit us back. Uh, and so that's lesson number two. So you're in, in the categories that you, you went through, what is to be done with, um, go through them again. So one would be people who are engaged in work organizing because of, of color. So I think that there's a few things that need to happen in worker organizing. One thing that I articulated to the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists a few years ago is that it's important for Black worker organizers, those of us organizing within the Black section of the working class, to have a vision that we fight for, for what the trade union movement needs to look like and what labor organizations need to look like as a whole. That it's not just about fighting for us. It's not just about improving the situation for Black workers as much as that is important, but it's also that we have every right to be engaged in reshaping the labor movement. Um, this is not a white people's task to which we're add-ons. We have every right, and therefore, we need to be ones that are thinking about where does the labor movement need to go? Not just in terms of black workers, but where does it need to go in terms of organizing strategy, international strategy, um, structure, the whole nine yards. Um, I think we have to look at also other organizations and efforts that are within the black working class. Uh, what needs to be done differently? And, and it goes back to this thing you keep saying or raising about power. Um, what do we mean by fighting for power? I think we need to make that very concrete. So if you have a black worker center or a largely black uh, trade union local or whatever, what do we mean by fighting for power? Um, I mean, I'm very clear when I'm thinking about fighting for power, I'm thinking about fighting for governing power in cities, counties, states, and ultimately the government. I'm thinking about getting people into elected office, into appointed office. I'm thinking about the development of alternative economic strategies, um, the development of vibrant mass organizations. Everyone needs to be on the same page in terms of what we're talking about. So for me, that's what I believe when I'm just thinking about what needs to be done in terms of black worker and organizing or worker organizing generally, that's the core. Now there's some strategic things and I don't know whether you want to go there, Steve, but um, I mean, you know, basic things like we, we really do need a Southern organizing strategy. And I'm optimistic in watching some developments in AFL-CIO and watching SEIU's new uh, Union of Southern Service Workers, uh, that there's new interest 
in a unorthodox approach to Southern organizing. Yeah, Bill, just a quick interjection there. This is a longer conversation that will not, that will not take place on this episode, at least. Mm-hmm. I think what's needed is linked to what you said about the Southern organizing strategy. Mm-hmm. You need kind of a, a lack of a better term, a non-big metro organizing strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we forget that a lot of rural areas back in the day, meaning say post-World War II to the early 70s, mm-hmm. um, had a large number of manufacturing concerns there mm-hmm. that allowed unions to prosper. They were in cities. They were actually in rural areas, right? Mm-hmm. And with the destruction of, of those arenas, you saw the loss of union power and therefore facilitating the, the drift to the right. I, I think that a lot of the forces impacting black communities that are outside of big cities were also impacting non-black communities outside of big cities. Mm-hmm. And figure out how to crack that nut would be important to both building power Excuse me, building power to go forward, but also building power to, to stop the advance to the right. So, quick thought, that's lead out to you. Well, uh, a few things. I, I absolutely think that there needs to be a rural organizing um, approach. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I, uh, I think that. Part of the issue that the reshaping of global capitalism and U.S. capitalism over the last 40 years has resulted in the relocation of many industries to rural areas where there are not a lot of people of color. And the union movement, by and large, does not have a strategy to address that. Um, you know, you, you saw beginning in the 1970s, 1980s, particularly, the creation of these mini mills um, of, uh, in the steel industry that were moving into rural areas. And it was followed a pattern, Steve, that was set by the textile industry in the earlier part of the 20th century when it moved out of New England and moved south to largely white areas where there were a few unions and where they made it more difficult to unionize in part by appealing to white racism. Um, so, so this is part of the challenge. That, that we have. Now, one effort, I, I think that the political and the economic can combine here on a certain level by the recognition that in order to win power in states, you have to have a statewide strategy. And many of the political efforts that have been undertaken over the years have been focused on cities, large metropolitan areas for very understandable reasons. Um, 
the problem is that if you're going to, if you're really fighting for power, you have to understand that one thing that the Republicans have done is uh, trying to capture rural areas in order to institute what's called state preemption. That is where state bodies, legislature, excuse me, legislature in particular, can block what happens at the municipal or county level uh, by saying that it's not the, the, the municipal the municipalities or the counties are not entitled to pursue things like uh, raising uh, uh, minimum wage, things like that. So I think that we have to have state strategies, uh, and, and that means organizing outside of rural areas, outside of urban areas. I want to go on to the other, other bucket of um, people who might want your advice, Bill. Mm-hmm. But one last thing on this, my point is simply that my understanding that the, 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 the Southern work organizing that was starting in North and South Carolina, they mentioned the Dollar, Dollar General stores. Mm-hmm. People are there. Well, people, they have Dollar General stores in West Texas. Mm-hmm. They have Dollar General stores in Eastern Washington as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm saying, saying that that's not only the matter of where you see new kind of a new manufacturing taking place, the mini mills, those sort of things. But simply, where do you have a hollowed out community where you have these dollar stores and these pawn shops and these other sort of small retails that are going on? But we have some black folks who are labor leaders or staff members who are quite progressive. What should they do, man? Um, one is to always keep in mind that you are a staff person. You're not an elected leader. And so you're working for an organization. You do not have the power or the mandate to operate as if you're the leader of the organization, unless you are. Um, so that's one thing. And that's, uh, I'm offering that in part to uh, ensure that people continue to work and don't get fired. Um, a second thing is to push the envelope in terms of what you can do as a staff person. That is uh, everything from uh, the strategies that are being developed, educational programs, um, expanding the kind of speakers that are being brought in, uh, to address the members, uh, looking at the kinds of things that people are reading. There's an amazing amount of things that staff people can do, but you've got to always keep in mind you're not the leader. And that even when you are much loved as a staff person, somebody can pull that trapdoor and you're gone. So it's, um, you've got to pace yourself. The first thing, though, Steve, whether you're uh, a staff person or whether you're doing salting or whatever, is make sure you can do the job that you were hired to do. And then you can start running your mouth. How about people who actually have elected positions? They're president of the the union. What should they do? Um, They should make sure that they have a governing coalition and that they understand the mandate of that coalition. What were they elected to do in this case? Uh, what do their supporters want them to do? What are their supporters themselves willing to do? One of the things that I, um, I, I once had a discussion with Rich, the late Richard Trumka, former president 
of the AFL-CIO. And I was talking with him when he was a secretary treasurer. And I said, uh, Rich, I mean, we were on a first name basis at the time. Um, I said, Rich, one of the differences I would have with you and John Sweeney, the former president of the AFL-CIO, is that when you all were elected, you needed to pull together the leaders, tell them they could bring one staff person with them, shut the door, and then say, okay, now what the hell are we going to do? You need to get their input. And he says, well, we did that. I said, no, you didn't. He said, we met with everybody. I said, yeah, right. As individuals, you met with everybody. But what I'm talking about is meeting with the whole group together and engage them in a discussion about now that we have won, what do we do? And what are the limits? Because one of the mistakes that I saw under the Sweeney administration, uh, which was from 1995 until 2009, was um, an assumption that the people that had backed his administration were actually backing his administration. And, and that, um, and, and so there were decisions that were being made based on, I think, assumptions that everyone was on the same place when they weren't. So as elected leaders, you've got to know who your coalition is and you've got to be paying attention to them all, all the time. How about people who wanted to build some sort of left? Pole and black politics. Um, what should they be doing, man? Um, there's a couple of things that people can do. There's organizations that are multiracial that one can join, where I think that a critical mass of black left activists can make a difference. I'm thinking, for, for instance, about the Working Families Party or Progressive Democrats of America. Um, a, a second thing that could be done is the establishment of um, black left community-based organizations that have an electoral component to them. So there's there's you got to be careful because if if it's exclusively electoral, then there's a certain kind of clientele you're going to attract. Um, but I'm thinking about power building organizations that are rooted in the communities that have a left left progressive orientation uh, and agenda, and and are engaging in fights at multiple levels. For example, the kind of organization I'm thinking about would show up at school committee meetings when you have these right-wing idiots talking about banning books. Um, they would show up when there's attempts to close uh, abortion clinics. Um, you know, in other words, there'd be, a, there'd be a kind of mass movement component of it. But there would also be 
political education and getting people with a small p and getting getting members, community activists involved in thinking about what is our agenda? What is it that we're trying to change? What, what do we want to take to our county, our city, our state, or whatever? And, and then begin the process of identifying candidates and getting them trained um, so that you don't have a situation where you're the recipients of candidates that have been picked by other people but where you're actually producing candidates. You know, one thing I think about kind of answering my questions in, in, in a certain ways is kind of two broad, different but linked fronts. One is how do you build durable, rooted organizations? Um, as I said before, when you do that, that changes who you talk to, how you talk to, and what you talk to them about. And that to me is kind of paramount, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but if that's one, this is one A, it's a question of, of I call, call it political education, call it ideology, call it dialogue, discourse, whatever we call it. Well, how do you raise the quality of understanding of our problems and, and then allow that higher level of understanding to interface through a people to elevate the quality of the politics? Now, I, th- I, th- I think that. Um, when we talk about racial issues devoid from divorce from political economy, mm-hmm. we're not only misrepresenting the problem, but we're also also leading to a set of strategies that lead to some either funky co- coalitions or lead to very shallow and therefore funky politics yeah. and organizations themselves. And so this notion that we need to look at every kind of arena of racial disparities and tie it to political economy is super important. And then how do we have a conversation around education depends upon the level you're talking about. For some people, it'd be sit down and read these books mm-hmm. in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Some of it means a matter of how do we have um, articles or videos that people can watch. Maybe it, it impacts our slogans, our chants, but every level got things through how to raise the quality of politics to, to raise, improve the, the quality of aqua now. So I've got to make this my last comment because I'm, I'm looking at the time and realizing I'm going to have to get off, uh, unfortunately. Um, so I would say that every organization needs an education program which means that every organization needs somebody who is responsible for overseeing the internal education of the group. And as you said, what kind of education is going to depend entirely on who you're dealing with? There's certain programs for leaders, for staff, for rank-and-file members, um, and they're not necessarily identical. Uh, For instance, uh, I worked to help to develop a racial justice program in Washington State for the Labor Council. Um, and what we came up with is something I'm very proud of. It's particularly applicable to leaders and staff. Why is it, n- why with, with, with the members? It's complicated, but in part it has to do with time, how much time people have. 
So an education program has to be based on who you're dealing with, what their reading level is, uh, and um, issues that are motivating them. The uh, so I, I and I think that that is something that is all too often ignored. So whether it's making articles available or having reading groups, I mean, one of the things that Trumpka did when he was the president of the United Mine Workers is he had um, his executive board read uh, Taylor Branch's books on the civil rights movement. Wow! Yeah, yeah. Wow, very cool. Very and cool. yeah, it was very cool. And, um, and I thought, wow, that's interesting. So when I got to SEIU, when I became the field service director, I had the regional directors read Bearing the Cross about uh, King and, the, and this Southern Christian Leadership Conference because I wanted to engage them in a discussion about social movements. It wasn't easy because people were not used to doing that. It also wasn't easy because I was the director of the department. And so, you know, people have to weigh, you know, weigh when do I agree with Bill and when do I not, right? Which, you know, any organization could, could figure out a way around. But the point is, engaging people in that kind of discussion uh, is really important in terms of elevating folks, which means, Steve, people got to read. You can't just do it based on Twitter. You know, it's oh, not like man. 140 characters, you know? Come on, dude. What's yeah. wrong with you? So, so Bill, I, I raised the question of, of reading because um, as you know, close before you leave, um, you're a famous author. Mm. And I understand that the sequel to your first book is coming out soon. That's right. This is your last chance to plug it on my show, man. So the, uh, the first book is called The Man Who Fell From the Sky. Uh, it's about race, justice, revenge, and Cape Verdean Americans in 1970, 71. The sequel takes place in 1978. It's called The Man Who Changed Colors. It's going to be coming out through Hardball Press in April of 2023. Uh, and it takes place starting in 1978. And it starts at the Quincy Shipyard, which is where I worked. And the opening of the book starts a week after I fell 20 feet. Um, and, and which I actually did. And in the book, a Cape Verdean immigrant welder falls to his death. And the main character is a journalist, a Cape Verdean American journalist, who is asked to write a story about why shipyards are so dangerous. And in the course of that, he discovers that it may not have been an accident. All right. So, um, I look forward to reading it, man. Thank you. Bill, thanks so much for this episode and all episodes beyond this and my life. And, um, well, we'll keep talking. Yeah. It just won't be on this format. So be well, man. Thank you. Thank you for all your work. And thanks for being such a great friend. Always, man. Be all good, right. man. Take care. Later. Bye-bye. Well, that's a wrap. As I said in the beginning of this episode, hosting Black Work Talk has been a joy. We will never win the world we deserve without grappling with foundational issues such as the relationship of race and class, the need to increase the quantity and quality of local organizing, 
how to engage in electoral politics from a movement perspective. And addressing all of these issues and more are key to the essential imperative of building power. I learned more about these issues as we discussed them over the past two years. I hope you have as well. I hope you'll continue to support Convergence and stay on the lookout for the new initiatives. And I will explore new projects to enjoy and contribute to building our beloved community. Stay tuned. Next time, stay safe and be well.